Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boring bits. You can listen live to the show Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio for free. Just retune your DAB radio, ask your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating conversation with someone I met on the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. With all this talk of what's going on with immigration, both legal and illegal, I speak to the barrister Hashim Mohammed, who came to the UK as a refugee, age nine, he was born in Somalia, came to the UK without his parents, without being able to speak English. He talks about how he got on, how he adjusted, how he learned English, schooling, the role of education in social mobility, and whether or not he'd ever enter politics. So a genuinely fascinating conversation coming up with him in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at what's going on in the world with these two. The Columnists on Times Radio. Uh, yes, and this morning I'm joined by, as we often are on a Thursday, Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew. Hello, hello. And uh, no Mavi Runner this week, so we've got Jenny Russell. Hello, Jenny. Good morning. Um, let's let's start with uh, the news that emerged overnight: the death of Henry Kissinger, the U- former U.S. Secretary of State, at the age of a hundred. I mean, extraordinary uh, life story. Let's just reflect on that for a moment. He was a refugee from the Nazis before uh, moving to America, then uh, fought for America in the Second World War. As a diplomat, he was a central figure in bringing China and America together. But he also had a central role in negotiating the Vietnam Peace Accord, for which he was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 1973. Nothing that has happened to me in public life has moved me more than this award. He remained active in politics for the rest of his life, but only formally served in government between 1969 and 1977. Here he is delivering his farewell speech at a National National Press Club in Washington in 1977. I've been called indispensable and the miracle worker. I know because I remember every word I say. It's a good joke, if nothing else. Um, Matthew, first of all, your your reflections on uh, an influential but controversial figure. I think he's one of those people whom... History will not particularly remember. It, it, it would be hard, I think, for more than one in a hundred of us, even now, to say what the effect of Henry Kissinger and his his advice was 
in in the time when he was giving it. I, I think he probably was a wise man. He did give good advice, but he was very much of his time. And I, I wonder whether the enormous importance that, that used to be ascribed to him will, will linger on for very long. I, I, I'm not a great believer in the hero in history. I'm not sure that there are many people who by their own lives have made a huge difference, and I'm not sure that he's one of them. Um, Jenny, your, your first reflection. I think he was a brilliant strategist for keeping America ruthlessly powerful and also an absolutely monstrous um, bringer of death to millions and um, had a marked indifference to the lives of anyone who wasn't American in the, in the, in the cause of keeping America powerful against Russia. And I think now, and then actually, I remember as a child, the bombing campaign against Cambodia which was an attempt to destroy the weapons pipelines of the North Vietnamese. It pretty much failed at that, but it killed hundreds of thousands of people and led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge, who, who killed millions. I think his ruthlessness um, was and remains absolutely monstrous and often counterproductive. One of the things that struck me reading the Times uh, obituary today, um, Matthew, was the, the reflection from his biographer, uh, Walter Isaacson, saying that because of his upbringing and uh, coming, you know, fleeing fleeing the Nazis in the in the nineteen twenties, and then going back and sort of fighting them, he had this deep pessimism about human nature, which sort of then meant that he sort of pursued stability and order even at the expense of human rights. And Walter Isaacson said, given a choice of order or justice, he often said he would choose order. He'd seen too clearly the consequences of disorder, which which actually goes some way to at least explaining his sort of, his approach that actually the consequences of his actions he thought was just a price worth paying to, you know, even if, you know, the the, the collateral damage that, that Jenny's talking about. And I suppose that, that make, as a result of him being very much of his time, that, that being a German Jew in the 1920s and seeing what happened in, in Germany, that, that gave him the, a sense of clarity, which meant he was this complicated figure. Well, Jenny's right about the Cambodia campaign. That was disgraceful. It's very hard, though, to pick apart... Um, the the actual causes of American foreign policy and, and military policy was it him was was it his advice or was that the advice that was generally given? I think you're right about his background, though he had a younger brother who apparently had no European. He had a rather heavy European accent. The younger brother spoke perfect American with an American accent and was once asked why his older brother spoke so differently. The younger brother said, that's because Henry never listens to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's uh, an interesting reflection. Actually, it was a point that he, he that, that joke we just heard from him was, he was yeah, he, he was a writer of his own history. I also yes. wanted, reading, reading some of the obits and, and things this morning, you know, he being a... Shuttle diplomacy, constructive ambiguity, back channels, his style of going about um, uh, diplomacy, all those things now, and he you know, was not the only one to, to do that, but sort of that style of diplomacy is, is, is now just the shorthand for how we think. I mean, all of those phrases were definitely used when Theresa May was, was, was trying to negotiate uh, Brexit. Is he just to sort of defined what 
international diplomacy looked like, for good or bad? Because it's sort of a weird thing, Jenny, that so many sort of world leaders and politicians felt they wanted to meet Henry Kissinger and, you know, share a stage with him or whatever, without necessarily being totally sure why. Well, he had immense personal charisma, and he yeah. was, um, and and he could hold a room, and he had magnetism. I met him once at Davos twenty five years ago, where he gave um, an absolutely stunning speech to world leaders, warning that um, the financial instability that capitalism was bringing around the world was being ignored by um, all the leaders, and unless capitalism started issuing its um, rewards more fairly, then we were going to lead to a new age in which there was, was the danger of the rise of all the all the worst isms, communism, nationalism, a lot of which has, um, has, has, has come to be true. And I think that's why people wanted to be around him. Shimon Peres once famously said that he was the most devious man he had ever met. And there is something compelling about people who are powerful and intelligent, and you don't quite know who they know and what they know and what they can tell you. But having said that, I just want to go back to what you said about order and justice. Mm. The problem with that is that he wanted the order that America experienced. He didn't care about the disorder that he was sowing elsewhere in the world and certainly not about the injustice. So it wasn't that he was bringing good things to the world. I mean, you'd have to talk to um, the South Americans where he licensed the dirty war in Argentina um, in which at least 30,000 left-wingers and trade unionists and intellectuals were killed or what happened um, with Pakistan and Bangladesh. But the, the problem was that he was perfectly willing to allow other people to experience the kind of horror that mm. had happened in the World War. He just didn't want it to come to America's shores. It's really interesting. I, that. Sorry, go on, Matthew. Jen is definitely right about his personal magnetism. Some years ago, I was at a very large dinner party and the subject of Henry Kissinger came up and two of the women at the dinner party had had brief affairs with him. So if that's a random sample. <laughs> can, can, I, can I say he invited me instantly, held oh. my hand and said, come to dinner with me in New York, will you come? I'm not you surprised, Jenny. <laughs> he was obviously somebody who propositioned everybody. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's more discerning than that, Jenny. I'm sure he was. Uh, but there'll also be plenty more reflection on that. And, and uh, it's, it is well worth reading the, uh, the, Times, the Times obituary uh, online or in the paper. Um, uh, let's move on and, and, and talk about some, uh, some other news. Uh, close to the home, well, working from home seems to be the issue. 40% of civil servants have said they're considering quitting after being told they should go to the office three days a week, 12,000 civil servants were, were surveyed uh, for this. Um, 73% of them preferred w- uh, to work remotely for three or more days a week, but uh, ministers want them back in. And then sort of um, alongside that, uh, Matthew, you, uh, you were writing at the weekend about um, mental health and the way that mental mm. health is being used as a sort of shortcut uh, to things. You're, you're concerned that that's uh, another thing that's sort of you know, lots of people now citing mental health uh, for maybe the reason they can't work at all. Um, and no one's really interrogating how, how serious that is. I mean, I wonder whether you, what, what, first of all, you make of this idea that, that 40% of civil servants could quit or th- say they've considered quitting rather than going into the office. Yeah, well, considered quitting is a very different thing from, <laughs> from quitting. I'm always very sceptical. Uh, There's always surveys from yes. you know, teaching unions saying 100% yeah. of teachers have thought about resigning. We've all thought yes. about resigning. I'm yeah. considering going to the gym this morning. I'm not doing that. I'm definitely not doing that. But I, I, I do think on, on the mental health issue, I, I, I definitely was not trying to say and would never say 
that 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 nobody suffers from mental health mm. issues. Some people suffer terribly. They're they're not making it up. But around that sort of um, hardcore is a very large penumbra of people who, like like all of us, sometimes feel anxious, sometimes feel depressed, sometimes find it hard to concentrate, and and have been discovering in recent decades that that they they have a condition, and and that there there is an acronym for the condition, and that that you can be counselled for the condition, and that you can get off work and receive disability benefits which are much often much greater than ordinary unemployment benefits so it can be a ticket to not working and uh, uh, while i i wouldn't accuse everybody or, or even perhaps most people i think the huge numbers of people who are now off work because of mental health health issues does suggest that this is being abused um Jenny, what did you what do you make of this? Because it's it's a really difficult thing, and Matthew reflected on it in his in his column that having having questioned this before, you know, people get very upset because of their own personal experience. Mm. And you know, the point that Matthew makes, everyone knows people who've st- struggled with their mental health, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't question uh, why so many people say that they've now got. In fact, somebody's just got in touch now saying Matthew's mental health column was an utter disgrace, uh, yeah. hugely dangerous and damaging. He should be ashamed. Um, which I know is something that you, exactly an argument that you, you address in your column, Matthew. What, do you, what yeah. do you make of it, Jenny? Well, I think there are two separate things here. Why do civil servants not, not want to go back to the office and, 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 and what is happening with this um, explosion in people with mental health diagnoses? And that, of course, the difficulty that we face is it's, all, it's almost impossible to actually know what's going on in someone else's head. But we, but we are very social animals and we do react in the way that society tells us is legitimate. So that if suddenly we're told that if you're feeling a bit anxious and so on, this is enough for you not to go to work, then you're likely to dwell on that. Whereas there's a whole argument to be said that if you're in that in-between stage that many of us have been in at times in our lives because we've got crises going on or we're very unhappy about something or we're distracted. Actually, going to work can be mm. a tremendous relief because you bury yourself in something yeah. else. You, you, you don't think about whatever it is that's taking up um, a huge amount of um, headspace in your personal life or and, and, you, and you don't have the, the time to think about um, how you're feeling. And that can actually be a blessed relief to bury yourself in some um, activity with people who are not concerned with how you're feeling individually and to let that part of your brain work. And I think that's what that's what we are in danger of um, forgetting at the moment, that actually it's not always a good thing, as all of us know, to sit around thinking about the crises in our lives. It can be a great pleasure to forget about it and to get lost in something else. And that's what the workplace provides. I suppose that's, that's the thing. When you're talking about mental health, that actually, the, the, rather than being a, a reason not to work, actually, that there is, a, the, unlike, I suppose, like a physical disability, which means you, you maybe can't work, actually the process of the, and the structure and the, the upsides of work might actually be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. It's really interesting. Well, it needed to say... And, and, and just as Matthew says, this isn't to say that people who are properly mentally ill are in the same category. It's just that when we're in that in-between... Yeah category. Jenny, Matthew, um, I just wanted to uh, get your reflections on the, the demise it seems of Newsnight, or at least they're cutting it back, they're getting rid of the, their own reporters and uh, uh, it becoming basically a sort of half hour news discussion um, programme. I know you've both both appeared on it many times over the years. Um, uh, Jenny, is this, is this just inevitable that with other ways that people get their news now, they don't need to wait till 10.30 to try and work out what's going on in the world? 
No, I don't think it was inevitable. I think it's been um, essentially killed off and will be turned into a shadow of itself um, pretty much by political pressure and political decisions. I think um, two things happened. First was that um, George Osborne gave such an appalling licence fee settlement to the BBC that they've had to make cuts all over the place. Secondly, Boris Johnson's government um, adopted a policy of not letting ministers go on to programmes like Newsnight. So it stopped being a forum where you could expect to hear the top politicians being held to account. And thirdly, in response to nervousness about um, being seen as politically too abrasive by the government, the BBC stopped backing Newsnight. Em Emily Maitlis, who was um, its most recent and brilliant star presenter, who let's remember, let's remember, only four years ago got that groundbreaking interview with Prince Andrew, which absolutely um, shattered his reputation and caused him to withdraw from public life. She was not backed by her bosses at all. She was constantly being undermined by them and publicly criticised. And the kind of brave journalism that the news tonight was doing was discouraged. So now it's become a shadow of itself because already the people who run it are clearly frightened of making waves in the way that Emily did and the programme no longer has the stature that it did. Matthew, I, I, I think it's a I great loss to journalism. I don't think that's at all right, Jenny. The, the, the reason it's being cut is the viewing figures have just been going inexorably down but, over but the, the years. But the reason the viewing we, figures we, are going down are, there, are, there, are, are due to those sorts of I causes. Carry on. I, I don't think so. We just don't get our news that way anymore. Uh, within seconds of something breaking, there are people being interviewed and, and you, you, you can immediately get the response. We don't settle down for an evening with TV in the way that we used to. And I, I don't think it's the fault of Newsnight or the people on Newsnight or the people controlling Newsnight. It's the, the way that we get our news is changing and Newsnight really doesn't have much of a place in that world. Well, we'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. I, mean, I also think that one of the big differences is the, the morning round, the endless interviewing of politicians. Actually, means that we yeah. maybe we don't need it morning, noon, and night. Uh, but yes. there we are. Uh, let's move on. Because um, uh, uh, Susie's here. Susie Goldsworth, who's the Times' assistant literary editor, has been writing today about love letters, uh, inspired in part by. Um, a love letter sent by President Jimmy Carter. Uh, so there was a memorial service uh, uh, held for the former First Lady, Rosalind Carter, who died aged 96 early this month. And their daughter, Amy, read out a 75-year-old love letter sent by uh, President Carter, Jimmy Carter. Uh, they were married for 77 years. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. Uh, Susan, the thing that struck me, because you put them pulled together, your, your list of favourite love letters... Mm. Um, they date from 1835 to 1936. Is the love letter dead? The art of the love letter dead? Uh, I suppose, technologically speaking, it's been on a downhill trajectory for a while. Yeah. Obviously, we don't write letters anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it's dead, though. I think in, in many ways, um, the 
like emails have, have kind of replaced letters. And I and I do wonder whether there are people out there um, penning, you know, penning romantic emails. Yeah. And 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 I, I know I've received love letters. We've all written the odd yeah. love letter, but but that was its heyday, I think. Yeah, yeah. The- Matthew, Jenny, are you big writers of love letters? No, I'm not at all. No, I can't imagine <laughs> writing a, a love letter. But we did once, my brothers and sisters and me, discover in an old chest of drawers about 20 letters written by my father to my mother when they were still courting. And and they were amazing, a, an explosion of love and adoration. And my father was not like that at all. Mm. We did not recognise the man we knew as our father um, in the man that was writing those letters to my mother. Incredible. Oh, that's really nice. What about you, Jenny? Yeah, I think that's fascinating because I listen to that and I th- and 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 half of me curls up in um, hideous dismay. I, I feel much too English to want to write those things down, although I might feel them. Is that is that part? But then isn't that part of the point? Susie, you can write down things that you would never say in person. Exactly. Picking up on Matthew's point, I think that's really typical to um, kind of be surprised by the level of eloquence in a letter compared with perhaps the person you knew. I mean, the problem with human beings, right, is that they're uh, inarticulate and repressed, um, especially perhaps some would say <laughs> British people. Whereas the love letter gives you both the kind of um, the, the time to create eloquence and the, the, the sort of safe space with which to kind of um, express, um, uh, you, you know, um, real feelings. I mean, mm. No offence to Jimmy Carter. Um, yeah. I'm with Jenny. I think that's a pretty rubbish love letter. Because it's... it's Go on, then, very, very quickly, your favourite? Um, my favourite are the sour ones. Um, Evelyn Waugh um, writing, um, I, I wish you'd marry me. Um, I think it would be awful for you, but think how nice it would be for me. Jenny Russell and Matthew Powers, and you can read them both in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Hashem Mohammed. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. The headlines are dominated by statistics about who is coming to the UK and why. But what's it like to arrive in Britain as a child without your parents or the ability to speak English? Somali-born Hashim Mohammed was just nine years old when he landed in London with some of his siblings. His father had died. His mother stayed behind in Africa. He had no English, attending a struggling comprehensive that at times was so violent he once witnessed his head teacher beaten by a parent in the playground. Three decades on, he is a barrister and author who, as a mentor of his once told him, has the voice and confidence of an Eton graduate. I sat down with him on the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at Sea to talk parents, politics and the moment he arrived in Britain. Exactly 30 years ago, I came to the UK as a young unaccompanied child refugee whose parents, who were never formally educated, had gone through this incredibly tumultuous period that resulted in uh, my father dying when I was nine years old in a car crash. My mum, who'd given birth to 12 children, being left uh, as a widow with many mouths to feed. And at a time when the Somali state had collapsed and we found ourselves trapped in Kenya alongside many of uh, other people who were fleeing war and uh, famine and destitution, and multiple members of my family ended up in either Canada, 
the US, some ended up in Scandinavia, some ended up, you know, distant relatives of mine ended up on refugee camps in Ethiopia, in Kenya. And so we were very fortunate enough to have been the group who were able to get to the UK without my mum, who decided to stay because she wanted to um, arrange my father's affairs. And we ended up in Northwest London. So how, how did you physically get to the UK? So physically you, you end up paying agents who would normally take you through various borders. But on this occasion, it was very straightforward. You catch a flight, you turn up at Heathrow, they check where you've come from, they ask you what country you're from, they check the language that you're speaking. And at that time, things were much, much more you know, simpler and the routes to get in asylum were much, much safer. That's one of the interesting debates that you often you know, get frustrated with is how much back then there were safe routes yeah. for people to be able to come and seek asylum. And can you remember how that felt arriving in the UK, unable yeah. to speak English? having grown up in Africa as far away from miserable North London as you could possibly get. Yeah, it's really interesting. I genuinely still remember very, very strongly how warm it was when we arrived in, in June 1993. I remember it feeling like a bit of a holiday. I remember wearing a suit that was about four sizes too big for me I remember wearing shoes that were way too big for me because everybody was pretending as if like we were going on a holiday. And I remember, I remember being the only one in the family group. There were six of us, including my sister, who was about 19, 20, and she had her own two kids at that point already. I remember being the, um, the only one who had some tiny understanding of English in the sense that we'd been watching movies in English, right? So that when we turned up, I was like the confident one standing in front. And I think the lady must have said, oh, come this way. Do you have your passports and documents or whatever? And apparently, I don't remember this, but apparently I turned around and I confidently told them, I think they're asking for our food orders. Who, who, what do you want to eat? <laughs> <laughs> so it turned out your English wasn't as good as you And thought. I was like, and then the, woman, you know, the woman was like, come on this way. And then my sister's like, stop talking, like stand back kind of thing. And another one of those funny stories is when we first went to Sainsbury's, we got the cordial Ribena and I declared it was wine and that we shouldn't be drinking it. <laughs> Everybody, nice. It was like, you know, stuff like that. You just think, oh man, I... The, the English, uh, another story I remember about how poor my English was, was that I remember a girl in a school about a year after we had arrived was telling me my flies are undone. But I was looking up in the sky looking for a fly because yeah. I'm not familiar with the idioms and, you know. Yeah, yeah. So imagine my flies are undone, like there, but I'm looking up in the sky and everybody's looking down at me. And I mean, that's how basic our English was. And I remember be, it, it just... Genuinely, what I remember it most is being an adventure. It felt like an adventure. New place, new country. You're carrying a lot of trauma that you haven't processed. You're not understanding exactly what's going on, but it was quite exciting. And how do you then get from barely speaking English, wearing your oversized suit, to the guy sitting in front of me now, who presents as a very articulate, confident, on first appearance, don't say this the wrong way, but if you, when we first met, told me that you were privately educated, went to Oxford, now you're a barrister. That's clearly not the case. So how do you transform yeah. from that nine-year-old boy to you 30 years on? 
it's a really, really difficult journey that's hard to, to explain relatively quickly. But if I was to give you a sort of a straightforwardly um, shorted version of it, 1993 to 2003 are 10 years of unbelievable amounts of trauma and pain where I helped to bury my father and I remember Matt some nights I would wake up in the middle of the night just crying and not quite understanding why I'm crying crying about my mum who wasn't there crying about my dad who wasn't there crying about the fact that I was living with with relatives who I didn't know and just groping in the darkness for ideas for a sense check for processing what was going through your mind and going through the education system enough to just get me to the next stage to do enough to do past the the sats to pass the GCSEs enough grades just to get by and in that period of those 10 years we're moving from one squalor council accommodation to the next I think it was something like we moved around eight or nine times in four years. My mum would then join us four years after coming. So 97, my mum would arrive. But at that point, she doesn't speak any English. We're mostly conversing in English. She's trying to speak to us in Somali and Swahili, which are the languages yeah. that we were conversing when we last met. And we're, we're strangers. So then your mum arrives and you don't really recognize her. And it's, it's the most surreal experience. Then in 2002, you know, when I was still 17, I thought what would be really good is if I went back to Kenya to revisit that place, to kind of reconnect and think about what's happened to me. And three things resulted from that trip. The first was that this whole mantra that families are given around, we're going to go back. We're not staying in this country for long. We're refugees. Our time is limited that quickly disappeared when i got there i was like i'm not coming back to this like hole and i just thought to myself i'm not this is not my life the second thing that happened for me was that it was the first time i fully confronted the death of my father because i was carrying with me that for 10 years and it was the first time i just thought okay he's gone process it now it's time to move on the third and the, probably the most important thing was then I, re I said to myself, I've wasted so much time. I've genuinely wasted so much time. In that period, I was playing a lot of football. I was playing for really good teams. I thought I was going to become professional. But that kept me off the streets. It kept me out of trouble. And it kept me focused on something. But then when that switch took place, the way I described it in the book was a sort of a whole massive haze was lifted from my face in a way that just allowed me to genuinely understand the world better. And then I went on to the University of Hertfordshire to do like a law and French degree. It was the best that I could get for my courses. But then every year my grades were doubling or just getting better and better and better. By the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I was fluent in French, was top marks in the whole school, gave the valedictorian speech at the university. Wow. And then I applied for a job at the BBC, got the short-term contract, and then uh, I thought, I don't want to work for anyone. I, I, when I got into the BBC and I saw how people were, I just thought, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with the possibility of having to deal with appraisals and kissing people's you know, backsides and 
thinking about how I can get on. I was like, what I do want to do is I want to be self-employed. So then I applied for a master's to go to Oxford, got in full scholarship. Then I applied to do the bar course as a barrister, applied, got it, got a full scholarship. It's the first time in my life where I'm not working and studying at the same time. And then I became a barrister in 2012. I started in 2011. And what would that nine-year-old arriving in the UK make of that 25-year-old, 30-year-old becoming a barrister? Yeah, it was was 26 when I was qualified as a barrister and started. Uh, That nine-year-old, I'd like to think that that nine-year-old wouldn't be surprised. I really genuinely believe that that nine-year-old wouldn't be surprised. I think that nine-year-old probably would have thought... It looks like a very ambitious thing to do. Good luck. Your football career failed, so be cautious. And also, it's also important to say, and I acknowledge this in my book, I had a lot of therapy. I spoke to people about all that trauma, all that pain, to just digest it. And how how did you access that? Because lots of people will know now it's really hard, even when you've identified you've got an issue accessing therapy so was that through the nhs how did you how did you get that it was a combination of me approaching my college when i was doing my a levels it was really interesting when i was doing my a levels there was a girl in my class who was in a wheelchair who had a carer and that carer used to come with her to classes and i really got to know them and, and you know speak to them and so on and i remember her saying something and I remember saying I could do with some therapy and she gave me someone's card and this lady whose card she gave me I went along to see her and I think she charged me like literally five pounds a session so it wasn't I didn't go to a doctor yeah, I didn't yeah. access it through that it was just somebody who told somebody and I really enjoyed that so much that after I even wrote my first book I went back this time I could afford to pay for it myself privately yeah 70 80 quid an hour but that was for me right at the beginning part of that journey of i've gone back to kenya visited my father's grave i've lo- i've wasted a lot of time i want to be a barrister i knew that that i even knew back then i knew that journey couldn't be complete if i didn't confront my trauma and i didn't confront the kind of pain that i've experienced and that g- genuinely if there's anything that people want to take away from this is that was a big part of the steps that I've taken to who I am now and what I've become. Actually, we've talked about your story and how you go from arriving in the UK, age nine, can't speak English, to becoming a barrister and the position you're in now. And you, your book, People Like Us, talks about the role of education, but other things as well, in social mobility. Is education enough for people to get on where there are lots of people who have a good education who don't get on and people who have a bad education sometimes they do how big a part in it is it luck is it family circumstance is it your own willpower drive yeah i i think that education is not enough and if i may quote michael gove when he was education secretary he said that in this country if you are a dim rich kid you will go much further than a clever poor kid And what he was effectively saying was that effectively having more education, more qualifications, degree classifications, and having all of those behind you is not enough in a society whereby a huge amount is determined by the parents to whom you were born, 
the kind of school that you went to that will have taught you the kind of unwritten rules, the soft skills, what sociologists refer to as the social and cultural capital. The social cultural capital could be in terms of the social capital is who do you know, who do they know? My son now can come into my chambers as a barrister and at the age of three is observing, absorbing what it means to be a barrister. Yeah. If he grows up and having been in my office more than 10,000 times between now and when he's 18, if he does want to be a barrister, he's not walking into a set of chambers for the first time. Yeah. It will be in him. But it's also it's that, it's that sort of being intimidated by situations. Exactly. Whatever that, you know, it could be a completely different industry that Complete, you might want to go into, but absolutely. being confident about those, those things. Absolutely. And that's what social capital is about. Yeah. And that social capital, if you are a very clever kid growing up in Grimsby or Tottenham or, or, or Skegness, if you don't have the access to those spaces, yeah. you could be the cleverest kid on paper, but you will either be intimidated, you won't understand the kind of ways in which they function, the mindset, the language, yeah. the way you carry yourself. And so that's the social capital. The cultural capital is often about language, how you speak, how you pronounce things, how you carry yourself. It might be uh, the difference between uh, Shostakovich and EastEnders or whatever it might be. That cultural capital that underlies the profession that is unspoken, that you get from your traditional education, the, the, the Latin phrases, that makes a big difference yeah. to the profession. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is if you are going into a profession like a barrister, you have to be comfortable with being self-employed. Now, if you're coming from a financially precarious background where your parents have struggled, where you have struggled, and now you're an adult looking for a job, you want a paycheck. Yeah. You want a guaranteed salary. You're not going to be comfortable saying, actually, I might not earn that much money this month, and I'm okay with that. That's not how you're going to think. So that is an, another aspect of the mindset. So education is critical. Don't let me sort of mislead your listeners. Education is critical for any human being to progress. But the idea that social mobility will be improved exponentially over a number of years purely by having kids go to university and have more exams and pass more exams and have more degrees the link isn't there. Yeah. You definitely do need education, but you need a lot more on Edu top of that. A, a very short summary. Education gets you up to the starting lineup of a race. How well you run, how fast you run, how well you do, whether you have the stamina to finish that race is much more than education. And what about what you do next? Would you ever consider politics, actually going into politics, given your experience and your... Well, basically, we've just talked about social mobility and education, how it's a much more rounded thing. Is, would you consider going into politics? I, I'm a huge believer in the political domain in the sense that that's where power is. That's where decisions are made. That's where you can genuinely make a massive difference in people's lives. But I'm unbelievably hesitant about doing politics for really fundamentally three reasons. The first is that I think the current climate and the current ways in which we do politics both in this country and the western world if i can put it that way is deeply toxic unattractive and really not conducive to ensure that we can tackle the problems of our time and i don't need to tell your listeners about the abuse 
on social media. I don't need to tell you about the way in which political parties have become so insular, how political parties are so insecure about allowing politicians to express various views in relation to what they think about the world. I don't like the way in which the whole messaging thing and how people just focus on a message and they keep repeating the same sentences. Just yesterday, I was, I was watching a clip of Rishi Sunak and he was asked two completely different questions and he gave the same identical answer literally seconds apart. And it's just poisonous, you know, and that's one thing that really doesn't attract me. The second is as somebody who grew up without my father and having dad when I was nine years old, I felt I've always grown up with a genuine feeling with a massive hole in my chest and in my heart of what it felt like not to have a dad around. And if I go into politics, I feel that I will be further away from my family. I'll be further away from my kids. I'll be further away from them in their most formative years. And that would mean that I'm choosing to inflict on them something that my father didn't choose to inflict on me because he had died. And I feel really queasy and really uncomfortable. Third, and I'd be blunt, it'll be a massive pay cut. <laughs> let's not, let's not beat around good, the bush. It's a good, you know, it's a good point. When, when people say, I mean, I've, I for a long time I thought the MPs should be paid more yeah. because if we want the best people who have reached the top professions, whether that is the law or medicine or whatever, teaching, then they will earn more doing those jobs than they would as a, as a backbench MP. And, and I don't want to say that in a way that suggests that public service isn't worth yeah. it on its own. I mean, don't get me wrong, you're not going to go into politics for the money. And I guess back in the traditional ways of people, people would have been in the industry for a number of years. Yeah. And then they might say, actually, I want to give a decade of my life to public service. Yeah. And often, and this is another conversation, perhaps often they would have continued their profession. They would have carried on being the barrister yeah, yeah, yeah. or the judge or whatever. And then they would have been in the legislature trying to make laws in, govern our country. And then 10 years of service and come back out and carry on in your career. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So what we get instead is the kind of professional politicians, the people who frankly wouldn't get a job in the real world, people who, in all parties, people who are not fundamentally interested in changing things, taking risks, but rather, am I going to get sacked? How do I keep my job? I want to be able to go into politics and not care about whether or not the leader of whatever, if it's the leader of the opposition or the leader as a prime minister, I don't want to be constrained about what I think. Don't get me wrong. I believe in collective responsibility. You have to respect your leader. But I don't want to be the sort of person who's constrained if I want to be thoughtful about a policy that we might be implementing and being thoughtful about the pros and cons and why we've come to the decision that we've come yeah. to. And it might fail, but that's okay because this is the best that we can do for now. If you have a different idea, please come forward. We're happy to listen. We don't have those conversations in that healthy environment. You know, in, in courtroom on this, finally, in a courtroom, if you're arguing with someone, it's never a case that you stand in front of a judge and you think of the perfect argument. Instead, what you say is, my Lord, this is what I think is the answer to this point. My learner friend disagrees, fine. But if you agree with him, here are the logical consequences of why his argument fails. And so whilst my argument is imperfect, it's slightly more perfect than his. And that's the environment that's I'm such used a good to. way of summing up how politics should be. That's how it yeah. should be. It, nothing is meant to be perfect. And don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough. But people are so afraid of making mistakes and so afraid of taking risks. And so what we end up with is bland, 
stupid, simplistic answers. Take the, the migrants issue and this Rwanda yeah. thing at the moment. The reason why we find ourselves in this quagmire is because politicians want to believe that there is an absolute answer to the migration question. Mm. There isn't. America is facing a migration crisis. Any nation that's doing well in any part of the world right now is facing a migration issue. Now, we have to be honest with the public yeah. about that. We have to be honest with them with the fact that we're not going to be able to fully control who comes in and who goes out. So what's the next best thing? Yeah. And what does that look like? And what's, how can we build consensus towards that? Instead, it's Rwanda, close the borders, stop the students, tell them not to bring their, their families along, get us out of the ECHR. You know, it's like platitudes without thinking through all of the consequences of each and every single piece of strand that you're putting out there. You're not interested in that. You're only interested in the next cover of the Daily Mail, the next Daily Express piece, the next nonsense that you can put on, on social media. And it diminishes us. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe and head over to How to Win an Election with Peter Manelson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Hold up. 